Welcome to Miriosity, a podcast about Christianity for the merely curious. I'm Trevor Cook, and today I'm not just joined by co-founder Andrew Bass, but also two other special guest speakers, Andrew Hollinger and Noah Dellinger. Uh, Today we'll be discussing the Council of Nicaea, but before we get into the discussion, I think it'd be best if we just go around and let everyone introduce themselves. Thanks, Trevor. I am Andrew Bass. I am a master's student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, but I am uh, no longer a Baptist. I am a student director in an Anglican church here in Sanford, North Carolina. Um, I think that's about all there is to say about me. I'm hoping to be ordained there, but we've got a long process ahead of me. I'm just kind of focused on schooling aspect right now. Hi, y'all. I'm Andrew Hollinger. I am a postulant in the Episcopal Diocese of Fort Worth. Um, I'm currently a seminarian at Neshota House Theological Seminary in central Wisconsin. Hey, guys. I'm Noah Dellinger. I'm an MDiv student at Duke Divinity at, in uh, North Carolina, and I'm a Baptist, still hanging on for dear life, <laughs> and I've been ordained as a Baptist church in the General Convention of Texas. Good that there's someone here who's not Anglican again this time. I, I really appreciate the solidarity, Noah. Uh, <laughs> I got you, brother. All right. Well, today we are discussing the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. And I thought the best way to just kind of lean into this topic is to get a bit of context about the history of the church at this point. Uh, because previously we discussed the Council of Jerusalem, uh, and a lot of things have changed between there and the Council of Nicaea. Uh, would you guys like to give just some background on what's happening in the world for Christians these days? Sure. How about, um, I'll try and take this, give a little outline, and uh, Andrew and Noah, if you guys want to pipe in with something or correct me, you can do that. But... Yeah, so we, we left off our last episode talking about church councils in general and the council in Jerusalem. We have this model set by the elders in the early church, in the Church of Acts, where they are gathering in council, right, as the communion of saints, the body of believers there, to clarify doctrine. And that was a big key component that we mentioned in councils, they're not creating doctrine out of thin air or really creating doctrine in general, but the term would be that they are defining doctrine that is already true, that already reflects the nature of the Godhead. So the Council of Jerusalem, that's a, that's a first century council. That's why we have the pleasure of reading it in our scriptures somewhere around the year 50 AD. And the church at that time in the Roman Empire, uh, at first they were just kind of seen as a bit of a uh, annoyance, maybe a weird Jewish sect that was kind of doing their own thing, but kind of still Jewish. And to make a long story short, as time went on, especially into the second century, that really stopped being the case. Uh, Rome was paying closer in closer attention to these Christians and were noticing that they were not um, synonymous with the Jews. They were really something else and becoming their own. And so they were causing a lot of trouble in the Roman Empire. They were accused of things like cannibalism 
And um, as D.H. Williams, one of the my favorite professors from my time at Baylor, talked about, they were accused of not only atheism for rejecting the gods, but social deviancy. So as you can imagine, we have these, <laughs> you know, it's funny to think of now, but we had, according to the Roman Empire, we had these crazy cannibal, atheistic, social deviant Christians running around uh, who were... Who were <laughs> worshiping uh babies you'd really think that we'd have like some cooler church names given those (laughs) like monikers you know like i i would be down to go to like uh, you know the the cannibal church you know yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. first like first cannibal church of alexander deviants for christ you know like (laughs) i could join that so andrew why why were they being accused of cannibalism first of all that is a great to to clarify that's a great question noah so they were accused of cannibalism because of the eucharist basically they had this Mm. teaching right this is my body this is my blood and rome from the outside looking in saw these christians or maybe heard rumors about these christians who talked about eating flesh and drinking blood and it didn't help when they equated it to the god man especially you know the reverence for the birth of christ and that kind of just started a, a big rumor around Rome that these Christians are eating people. And <laughs> what? <laughs> so that was, yeah, that, that was kind of the situation that Christians were in. They were viewed as these, as these social deviants. Uh, persecution wasn't an official thing of Rome. It more happened just kind of sparingly in pockets. Sometimes it was really bad under guys like Nero and Domitian. Uh, I get names wrong. <laughs> in the first century, and uh, some periods were better. Uh, we have the famous story of Pliny the Younger sending a letter to Trajan in somewhere around 180 AD. I think I've got that time right, where he was asking what to do with these Christians. Uh, and he got a letter back that said, don't seek them out, but if they're brought to you, handle them accordingly, basically. So there was this kind of unofficial persecution of Christians. Uh, For these first 250 years or so, they were just kind of scattered around. They didn't have the luxury of gathering in council even if they wanted to. So there were some unofficial, what they call pre-Nicene councils, where they would uh, talk about some different growing heresies, mostly about who Christ is, just different sects that grew up by nature of the church being isolated and they tried to address them but it really wasn't until Nicaea that they were able to do that so to set the groundwork going in so we can get this conversation started I'll try and speed this up coming into the fourth century we have this underground church that is clearly not going anywhere um, gaining some acceptance in the Roman Empire And there is an emperor named Constantine who has this conversion experience in the battlefield. He has a dream that basically causes him to commit to Christianity. Now, the the genuineness of his conversion is debated, but the reality of his conversion is not. It really changed everything in Rome. In the year 313 AD, Constantine... Uh, enacted the Edict of Milan, which finally officially made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. So after 250 years, they were finally able to come out of the shadows and 
start to recognize each other as the body of Christ and make some connections across the empire. Yeah, and to, to clarify, sometimes there can be a misconception about the Edict of Milan. It didn't make Christianity the official religion of the empire. That would come later for a per- certain period of time. It just made Christianity a viable religion for people in the empire. So it made it legal, but it didn't make it the official religion. Right. Thanks, Noah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that was a, a Roman legal doctrine instead of a anything theological or pertaining to the church, right? Correct. But kind of coming outside of that, when you have Constantine, who's this political leader, and coming into this church... As Andrew's saying, these people and the church leaders and the lay people are kind of coming out of the shadows. And now that they have some breathing room, um, they have the space to kind of gather together and talk more thoroughly and more unitedly about some of the disagreements that they're having, these smaller heresies that are popping up. Um, and they're kind of congealing under the the, the title of um, Arianism because of a certain bishop that we will get to. So... Constantine set the groundwork for the council to happen because the council could meet um, legally. <laughs> right. And uh, Constantine was the one who called the council as well. Correct. Some people, you know, there's disagreements, as Andrew was saying, about um, Constantine's, you know, genuine interest in all of this, whether he's just trying to maintain order as an emperor because there's a lot of people becoming Christians, or maybe he was genuinely interested, you know, what is it? How are we supposed to talk about Christ? Who is this Christ? And um, either way, he does convene the council and it is over the matter of Christology or the nature of Jesus Christ. So you kind of touched on it very lightly. And I I know that it's jumping to kind of the, the the meat of the council itself but can we just begin to broach the subject of why we're gathering because last time on our podcast we discussed what it takes to cause a council to occur you know sugar mm. spice everything nice and then some chemical x except the chemical x in this situation is heresy um which you called arianism what is Arianism, and where is it coming from at this point? I'll, I'll let one of you two take that. Oh, don't Paul? be quiet now, guys. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I could take that. <clears throat> okay. Let's go. All right. So um, Arianism comes from Egypt um, in the in the realm of Alexandria, which is where Arius, this bishop, um, has his ministry. Um, And essentially what Arianism is, um, and before the the council uh, made its decision, um, Arianism wasn't really an ism, right? It was kind of a, it was an idea about the nature of God. Um, And the reason we're talking about this council right now is because people saw a problem with the way that they were thinking about Christ's divinity. Um, and essentially, it it boils down to the difference of an iota, right? It's either homoousius 
which is of the same nature, or homo eusius, which is of like nature. And while this is a very minute difference linguistically, um, maybe even conceptually, um, theologically, this, this is a very significant um, deviation of what we actually see in Scripture. Um, because what Arius is teaching, and what a lot of people think, well, that's actually kind of reasonable. Um, what Arius is teaching is that Jesus is not of the same nature of the Father. Jesus is the highest created thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it's not that God himself became incarnate to die on the cross. It's that God... Right, we have this this language um, sometimes in our interpretation of Scripture that that um, Christ was created in some way, um, and now th this this council is trying to iron out: is this creation language about Christ becoming human, or is this happening in eternity where God the Father exists? And then God kind of like says around the year of the zero, I'm going to make some guy and call him Jesus, right? <laughs> um, and the implications of this is that if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is just another creation, think of maybe like a Zeus, a really perfect Zeus, then how in the world can this created being cross the bridge between human sin and divine um, perfection? How can it, how can it, how can this created being solve the problem of sin? And if it, mm -hmm. if he's created, he can't, but if it's God becoming incarnate, um, then he can't. If anyone would like to add on to that, you can. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh I think um, talking about the creation creator divide is is huge for this council because you're you're kind of like they're trying to decide where Jesus falls on that divide, um, or more specifically where the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, of which that will eventually be called, um, a phrase that that's going to be big for this council is. Um, there was a time when the Son of God was not. And that is Arius's position, that he said, there was a time when the Son of God was not, which is like what Andrew was saying, that there was never a time when God was not. God has always been, meaning God the Father. But Arius is trying to say, later down the line sometime, um, whether that's at the beginning of time or whatever, however that works, God the Father created the Son. And what becomes the official position in Nicaea is a rejection of that, saying that there was never a time when the Son was not. Just as the Father is eternal, so is the Son eternal, because they're both God, and they both are of the same substance, homoousios, as Andrew was saying. Um, so they are also, the, the, these fancy words will start coming out, and they're consubstantial, which is the same thing to say homoousios, and they're also co-eternal, meaning that they both exist from eternity. That that's a, 
very well well put like all together and i really like the way uh hollinger that you explained kind of the the issue or the underlying uh kind of assumption that's being made there that there is a uh a difference in jesus nature if he loses his godness you know by having that transition and what it means for our salvation uh just because uh, i feel like a very popular media kind of format of this is if you're visited by your past or future self is it still you or if there's a clone of you that's created is is it no longer you because its timeline has a new beginning you know that it's created now even though it looks like you talks like you sounds like you you know like is it really you or does it lose kind of that identity by being created separately and existing at a time now while you do but previously having not existed that there's kind of like a separate quality of of uh what it means to have that identity or be that actual form which of course this is all occurring around the time that you know ideas about forms and Mm -hmm. substance are kind of big in philosophy uh so of course it makes sense that this is bleeding into what our theological debate is about consubstantiation is that we're trying to kind of understand if you know jesus is the perfect true form of god then how is he also human <laughs> how does yeah. he have substance right. substance that gets yeah born and everything i would say that um the the kenosis of jesus right that um um the beauty of kenosis of jesus say of not as paul writes um not counting equality with god to be grasped the beauty of christ's incarnation is lost if we don't have, if we don't realize that Jesus and the father are one. So that's, that's what I wanted to say about mm. that. Well said. I what, think I'll, Oh, go ahead, Noah. Oh, I just like taking a big picture. Look, I know that y'all started with Jerusalem and what a council is. I mean, let's think back even further. You have a, a Jewish man from Nazareth called Jesus of Nazareth. And he dies, he's crucified by the Roman government. And some people who are following him start to say that he rose from the dead. And they start to say that he's the king. And they start to say that actually everything has been created through him and in him and by him. And they start to equate this guy with the God of Israel, whom Israel claims to be the creator of all things. And so eventually we get to the point where these bishops from all across the no, almost the whole known world at this point in 325 are coming together and saying in one voice that this Jewish guy named Jesus Christ is actually the son of God. He was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, um, consubstantial with the father, um, that is, that's just a big claim. And I think, you know, this is such an influential part of not only just Western history, but world history, that we can kind of forget the gravity of this claim and almost that it's kind of radical and ridiculous <laughs> um, as much as it is beautiful and true and good. Uh, but just kind of taking that bird's eye view of what's going on in this council. 
Yeah, that sounds uh, even more epic than a bunch of cannibals that are, you know, taking over the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome insights all altogether about Arianism. Is anything else happening though besides the most central debate over the nature of Jesus at this council? Or do we have any other sorts of schisms or heresies, or is it uh, really just about Arianism? Well, I, <laughs> anyone want to go at that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, go ahead, go ahead, Noah. You can take that. Oh, I just talked for a little bit. You can go ahead. All right, <laughs> I'll follow up. So there, there are. Again, I I, I like the terminology that Andrew Hollinger, other Andrew, was using of it's it, it can be a bit anachronistic to, to go back and say like, oh, there were all these isms because that's kind of what we've ascribed to them, but building off of what Noah and Andrew were saying, these things were kind of organically springing up really out, mm-hmm. of, out of a religious fervor to try and identify who Christ is. Um, yeah. And, and, of course, it could be misguided, and I think that's one thing that's really important to remember about councils and, and why all Christians should pay mind to councils, regardless of the level of authority you give them. Because going back to the beginning, even into Jewish history, but just sticking with Christianity, going back to the beginning, every... pretty much... I, I'll just say every bad teaching, every heresy that's come out of Christianity was the result of someone sitting down with their Bible and trying to take it very seriously. And so I think that that's the same thing that was happening throughout the Roman Empire. And it didn't help that they were in these isolated communities and didn't have the opportunity to talk it over with people. And there's just a lot of power in community, especially when it comes to reading the Bible and interpreting the words of the apostles, the word of God, right? So, yeah, there, there were other heresies going around, mostly Christological, but Arianism was the, the big idea. Uh, Ar- Arius, his, his teaching was what was gaining a lot of ground, and that was really the, mm-hmm. mo- the motivating cause for Constantine calling the Council of Nicaea. If I might jump in, um, I really liked what you said about um, how these people weren't being um, malicious in the way that they were interpreting the Bible. They were really, really trying to figure this stuff out. And this is a point that uh, really impacts me um, when thinking about this, is that um, the difference between heresy and heterodoxy um, Mm. is not the value, is not the truth value. It's the willful decision to believe something contrary to what the church teaches. Mm. Mm. Right? That's a good Um, distinction. Because Arius was not a heretic until he decided to say, contrary to the first council of Nicaea, that Jesus was indeed created and not co-eternal with the Father. And we see this throughout all of the heresies. Um, And when we talk about Nestorianism, we can jump back into this because there's a fun story about that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think also in terms of what else the council is dealing with before the edict, edict of Milan with Constantine making 
Christianity an acceptable religion. There were situations in cities where Christianity was persecuted that certain Christians would renounce their faith so that they wouldn't be killed or wouldn't be persecuted. And the early church saw this as a really, really big deal. And so there was conflict among the church, among the Christians who remained in the church during that time of persecution. Once the religion um, was no longer persecuted under Constantine, some people wanted to come back to the church. And some of the Christians who remained during that time and endured through the persecution weren't okay with that. They were like, how come they can just come back? Yeah. Um, but the, the Council of Nicaea says that even though um, these people don't deserve clemency, they need to be dealt with mercifully. And so they established a time of, of uh, penitence um, for them to repent. And it was a pretty long time um, of like different stages of getting back into the church so that these people show that they're devoted. Um, but I think the big overarching note here is that the Council of Nicaea affirms um, that these people who at first rejected the faith, who want to come back, can repent and after a time of penitence be welcomed back into the fold. Definitely. And we see that in Miletius, which is um, one of the items on the docket for Nicaea 1 that doesn't get talked about very much. And Miletius was mm. a, uh, an early Egyptian bishop um, who was uh, him and the, the patriarch Peter I of Alexandria um, were imprisoned in 305 during the um, Diocletian persecution. And just like you said, people, um, to try to save their own lives, um, uh, either rejected or, um, you know, uh, presented themselves as not being Christians so as to escape, um, you know, uh, mortal harm. And uh, Peter I said that you can indeed come back and be received into the community of Christians God will forgive you. Mm -hmm. um, but Miletius was, he thought that he was being very lax and um, became a schismatic um, because of Peter I's um, really grace towards these Christians who um, gave up the faith mm -hmm. for a time. So, And also, in terms of the other things that the council deals with some of you who are familiar with the council or church history might be thinking wait isn't this like the council of nicaea where they canonize scripture and decide what books are in and what books are out is this <laughs> where they like decide all that um that's a yeah, that's a common misconception go, right? Come on. <laughs> yeah it's a common misconception and it's it's a popular one and um if you can look through the canons of the council there's really they're not dealing with the canon of scripture at all. It can be confusing when you have the canons of a council deciding the canons of scripture. It's kind of sharing the same words, but um, that's not what happens here. Underlying all of this thinking and the rationale for all of these decisions in the council, especially about Jesus, are the scriptures. I mean, the scriptures are the, the texts, along with the apostles' teaching in conjunction with that, are these, are kind of the basis and the foundation for these things that they're deciding but this is not a thing where like a couple of bishops get together and decide like okay you know gospel of thomas is out shepherd of hermas is out but first and second timothy are in uh that's 
a much more organic thing that actually is never really established in an ecumenical council because mm. it doesn't need to be. Right. Amen. Trevor, let's see if you can <laughs> let's see if you can reel us back in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it was getting so good. I was just sitting back and like enjoying it, and I was like, "Wait a second. I, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's return back to the council." Uh, of Nicaea for kind of what the results were. What what did we get from the Nicene uh, Council? I mean, first of all, what every Christian's probably familiar with uh, on some level, even if they they don't re- recognize it immediately, is the Nicene Creed. Um, do you guys uh, do any of you want to specifically jump on that? Yeah, we get a little bit of a rough draft of what yeah. we now call the Nicene Creed. <laughs> mm-hmm. We get a um, we get a very we get a very anti arius Nicene Creed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and that Arius was wrong. Well, and... <laughs> well quite, 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 quite literally, Noah, hold your thought. I will. Um, I'll just this is this is tacked on. This is kind of the asterisk on the end of the first. Nicene Creed um, so it's you know we believe and we'll, we'll go through the council shortly later but Father, Son, Holy Ghost and those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before <laughs> he was made and he was made out of nothing or he is of another substance or essence or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic <laughs> Church so then, then they they um they made sure to to address that. Noah, I'll I'll let you go back and, and answer. What what were the results? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that was that was the big point is you have these bishops. Um is it hundred and fifteen? I, I can't three, remember. It's um, three hundred and eighteen bishops. Oh man, I was way off. That's <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> uh three hundred bishops from across the known world. Um all across the church, affirming um, this this rough draft of the creed, which gets hammered out about sixty years later at the next council in Constantinople. Um, but I mean, in terms of that, might be the paper written down result. But a, another result, which was much more tangible in that time, was that um, there's a sense that that the church has some authority here in terms of defining and vocalizing in one voice who Christ is. Um, and maybe that's clear, maybe it's clearer now than in retrospect, because between here and Constantinople, um, there's going to be, this doesn't end the problem of Arianism. Mm, People aren't exactly going to be happy with Nicaea. You know, there's the famous thing about Athanasius, who was uh, pro-Nicaea, um, theologian who was he was exiled like three or four times because the Roman Empire just became handed over between Nicene empires and then pro-Aryan empire, emperors um, so this this doesn't you know wrap it up with a bow but it does show that this is a church that is capable of convening together and speaking in one voice so and it's, it's really beautiful um, to think of it this way, that um, the church as one body is moving toward God, right? 
This is mm-hmm. this is what these councils show me is that um, we're going to have some hiccups and some people aren't going to be on board. But along the way, we are running towards truth and we are going to find it. Right. So, yeah, I um want to interject. We um intentionally we were talking about this beforehand. We intentionally didn't want to list a bunch of names at the council. Uh, pre- mm-hmm. really, really just because the names of the bishop, the bishops present are much less relevant than what really took place and what happened. But just for yeah. just for Sparknotes clarity's sake, uh, we haven't talked much about Athanasius, but basically, uh, I'll give I'll try and make this really thirty second quick. So we have Arius, the bishop, uh, a bishop who comes to the council, and he's kind of got his sidekick, a guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia, and they are really firing off all of their theology on who Christ is. They end up losing the day. Um, the, we hear a lot about Athanasius and equate him to the Nicene Council. He was there, but he was really just a secretary to Alexander of Alexandria, who was the main, yep. the main bishop trying to hold it up. So Athanasius, he, is, he kind of becomes the big Nicene fanboy, uh, and he contributes, a <laughs> lo- he contributes a lot to um, quenching the fire that Arianism caused. But it was really more on behalf of Alexander that, that rallied the troops. And the, the ultimate ending there, uh, with a little nudge from Constantine, who promised exile, uh, initially the Nicene Creed had, um, I'm not great with my numbers, but 18 people didn't sign, and however many of 300 plus did. Uh, Constantine threatened to exile anyone who didn't sign the creed. And there were just three people left after that that decided that it wasn't worth it, and they dropped Arianism, at least in theory. So that was the immediate result of the council. That Sorry, pup, press play. We're back to where we were. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the verdict was dealt uh, exile for those who followed Arius, and those who refused to recant at the council. Um, now it's also said there was a lot of burning of any of his writings and possession of them was illegal in the Roman empire. Is that true? Yes. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> and rightfully <laughs> nice so. Nice short answer. So we could keep moving on. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was, it, it was good for, for keeping uh, unity in the church. And even, even more uh, so. Right. And it was, it was very effective right there weren't any more arians after the council right? <laughs> yeah there might there may have been a little bit of an oversight on the um on the on the tactics but it is it is uh the impulse though is really important because um as church leaders the bishops and we see this in scripture right um they are responsible for the souls under their care Right. And um, it is very important because what we believe does, in fact, have bearing on our eternal destination. Right. And so we, we, we see just just how how much they felt this heresy was dangerous um, because it was. Um, and this is something that we don't really um, think about today that. 
um, you know, false doctrine does indeed lead souls to hell. And that's a terrifying idea, mm. especially for those of us who are going into ministry, right? Yeah. I, so afterwards, is that the end of Arian beliefs uh, after the council? Or? It, it is not. So it continues to gain popularity. That's what leads... That's really what leads to the second ecumenical council. It's not until about 380. Hold hold up, Andrew. I just need to clarify one thing. These Christians who have been persecuted for a long time and are finally (laughs) told you don't need to be persecuted anymore, choose the belief system that leads them to be persecuted more? Well, after all that time, <laughs> I think I I think Christians have set by by Nicaea Christians have set a really good reputation for not being concerned about losing their lives over their beliefs, whether they are good or bad. Um, so that that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. But yeah, yeah. Arianism it, it continues to gain popularity because guys like Eusebius of Nicomedia who signed, really just signed to avoid exile and uh, almost immediately go back to teaching Arianism in the church. And funny enough, Eusebius of Nicomedia, I keep saying his full name because I don't want him to be confused with the more famous Eusebius of Caesarea, who was also at the, count, yeah. who was also at the council. He is uh, the, probably the best major church historian ever. But Eusebius of Nicomedia, not only did he continue teaching Arianism, but he actually was in Constantine's ear long enough to change his mind. Constantine got a deathbed baptism, and Eusebius of Nicomedia was the one who performed that baptism. So Constantine very likely, at least according to the evidence, died in Arian. (laughs) So the first council was put together, called forward by someone who eventually died believing the same heresy that they declared to be a heresy during this council yes that that is really a tick in in the ladder of many issues that orthodox lowercase o orthodox christians have with constantine Uh, because really his his view of the council as emperor was to maintain unity in the empire he was a christian he kind of wanted rome to be christian even though it'd be a while before that became official His quote, actually, at the council defending him calling it, Constantine said, I saw it as my duty that the Catholic Church shall preserve one faith. So that was his aim. Unlike Arius and Alexander and Athanasius, who were concerned with defending the the true interpretation, the true doctrine of Christ, Constantine was conserved with preserving unity in the church. So it's, it's one of many great examples of how God uses circumstances to strengthen and bless the church. And if I can jump in. Also in related. Can... Go for oh, it, Noah. Go ahead, Andrew. Just real quick, in terms of the relationship of this certain theological point and the role of the emperor, there are some historians and scholars that point to the theology of Arianism, meaning that there's this eternal father who is like ontologically higher and a monarch over the son who he creates, how it kind of fit in with some of the imperial like posture Mm. 
that emperor some emperors really liked it just fit in well with like you have father who can be analogous to the emperor and the son can be analogous to like more lower people and servants so there's also that that might be kind of part of this where emperors can wield this or see it as more friendly to what they want to do Yeah. Religion is the pacifier of the masses. <laughs> of the emperor, maybe. <laughs> um, what, I, what, I, what I wanted to say was um, there's, there's another misconception about um, Constantine calling this council. Um, every now and then you'll hear someone say um, Christianity is a product of um, imperial control. But what we see in this council is the exact opposite, right? We see that um, God working in these bishops um, is actually against the emperor, right? Um, mm-hmm. Constantine doesn't call this council in order to lay down the law, tell Christians what to believe, and just kind of take reins mm-hmm. of the church. Um, there's this fantastic quote from... Um, let me see if I can find it um, from Warren Carroll in his book, uh, The Building of Christendom um, from 1987. Resplendent in purple and gold, Constantine made a ceremonial entrance at the opening of the council, probably in early June, but respectively, respectfully seated the bishops ahead of himself. Right. So uh, Constantine isn't dictating to these bishops what to believe, and that's what eventually becomes Western Christianity. It's the opposite. Um, Constantine is giving these bishops the power, um, which they rightfully have given by God, um, to define doctrine and um, dispel error. So, That's very well said. Yes, Constantine didn't participate in the council. He called it and he led the church in enforcing the decision. Thank you, Andrew. That was good. (laughs) Speaking of giving the bishops power, what did this do in the spectrum of church authority? Don't make make that my church (laughs) and take this one. (laughs) I, um, Noah, do you want to do this or me? Who who should, who do you want to (laughs) answer? I mean, I'll just say I vote that the Baptists talk about church authority. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just gonna t- I'm gonna stick with the canons and what they say. Um, the canons, kind of, maybe uh, they concretize and calcify the order of you know you have bishops who are in charge of a certain diocese and whatnot and. Um, that there are certain key cities that are even like specially honored. There's a canon that talks about how Jerusalem is especially honored. And so bishops and their diocese or their provinces are, are upheld. And there's a call to be assembled together underneath the authority of the bishop. And there's even a canon that talks about how bishops in a local setting together, like certain bishops like in northern Egypt, um, that they should have local synods so like local councils at least once or twice a year so that they can kind of settle together these local things before they 
spread out like Arianism did into the entire empire. Um, so Nicaea gave, I'm not going to say it, it gave power to anybody. It just kind of like reaffirmed that there is an orderly system operating Definitely. and that it needs to continue to operate with order. Definitely. I, that seems like that's a big thing. I'm just talking historically, but that's, that's a big thing for a Baptist to say. <laughs> <laughs> And I commend you for it. <laughs> um, I, I think, and if, if I could add to that, getting back to the um, impact of Nicaea. So yeah, well, definitely what it did, you ask 10 people and get 20 different answers what that did for church authority. But really what it did unanimous, unanimously across the board was give us what we would call Nicene Christianity, which is really synonymous with Orthodox Christianity. Whether you are, well, here, let me say this first. It gave us this summary of the faith in the Nicene Creed, which we should read uh, before we finish. But it gave us this summary of the faith, right? Like, what do you believe? What, what are you repenting of and believing? Well, let's go to the creed and, and we'll answer that. And so now we have this Nicene Christian tradition that really encapsulates everything that we would consider Orthodox Christianity, whether it, whether it's Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or all of the branches of Protestantism, you know, from, from Calvin and the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, Anglicans, the Low Church Baptists, the Wesleyans, all of these, mm -hmm. all of these Christians are united around the faith professed in the Nicene Creed. And of course, it's the faith professed in the Bible, but the, the, the Nicene Creed as the summary of the interpretation of that faith. Amen. Well put. All right, now I say we end on a fun question, guys. <laughs> uh, which is your favorite creed? <laughs> the Nicene Creed or Apollo Creed? <laughs> Athanasian Creed. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a big Rocky this fan. This guy. I'm a big Rocky <laughs> fan, so I don't... I'd have to choose uh, wisely. I don't know, but I'll stick with the Nicene Creed on this one. <laughs> uh. <laughs> the Nicene Creed packs the bigger punch. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> we have been on here too long. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for coming on today. Really appreciate it. And Thanks uh, for thanks having for us. Forever. Thank you. I mean, discussion was immaculate. Uh, <laughs> always, always looking forward to having these talks. That's a later dogma. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find more resources to satisfy your curiosity, go to Muriosity.com and read more about the topics we discussed today. If you are a Muriosity supporter or have rated the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, we thank you for helping us to produce this show. In this episode, we featured Andrew Bass, Andrew Hollinger, and Noah Dellinger. This podcast is produced by Muriosity. Music by St. Cyril.